Many of you know that I am a huge sports fan, and I love pretty much every sport. There's a few that I don't really care about, but um, part of that's just from growing up down south, you know. Sorry, I don't, hockey just isn't on my radar. Uh, we don't play a lot of hockey, you know, down south. Uh, but uh, one of my favorite sports, though, is baseball. Love baseball. And uh, I've got my favorite teams, and I've got my teams I love to hate. And at the top of that list, the teams that I love to hate are the New York Yankees. Do not like the New York Yankees. Sorry if any of you Yankees fans. But there's one player on the New York Yankees, or used to be, uh, he's since passed away, that uh, it's hard not to like. It's a guy by the name of Yogi Berra, and I'm sure many of you know that name. Uh, Yogi was a great baseball player, Hall of Fame catcher, all-star catcher uh, for the New York Yankees, even went on to manage, uh, and he, was, he really was a great player. You just go look up the stats. He was tremendous, but uh, many people know Yogi not for his playing career, but for the comical way in which he said a lot of things. He said some things that were... Uh, quite funny, and they became known as yogiisms. So I thought I'd share a few with you uh, this morning. For example, regarding restaurants, he said, "Nobody goes there anymore. It's too crowded." Regarding, as some of you are going to have to take a little bit of time to get some of these. Uh, regarding the economy, he said, "A nickel ain't worth a dime anymore." <laughs> regarding directions, he said, "When you come to a fork in the road, take it." Regarding fan mail, he said, never answer an anonymous letter. Regarding the game of baseball, he said, baseball is 90% mental. The other half is physical, which tells me he didn't major in math. And one of my favorites, he said, was always go to other people's funerals. Otherwise, they won't go to yours. <laughs> but maybe one of the best things he said is, I really didn't say everything I said. And what he was alluding to was the fact that through the years, people would ascribe sayings to him that sounded like something he would say, but he really didn't say them. They weren't actually things that he said. And that's what people often do with the Bible as well. And so for the last several weeks, we've been in a series called The Bible Doesn't Say That, in which we've been walking through some things that are common cliches and, and sayings and beliefs that people have that we hold up as scripture oftentimes, but the reality is that they're just not in scripture. You know, we, we live in a culture where we have these, these Christian expressions where we hear phrases that just sound like they would be from the Bible, like follow your heart or everything happens for a reason or God will never give you more than you can handle or as we looked at last week, you have to forgive and forget but the reality is the Bible just doesn't say that. And I want to wrap up our series today with what is perhaps the most common misperception that people have about what the Bible says. And it's very critical that we explore it because it has to do with salvation, which makes it the most dangerous misperception I think that people have. And it's this. Many people think that the Bible teaches that being good is good enough. Being good is good enough. Apparently the most popular defense before God in the minds of people is that they need to give God clear evidence that you have basically been a good person. And there are many examples of this. I'll give you a couple on both ends of the spectrum. For example, several years ago there was a, uh, a series of advertisement, advertisements on the city buses in Bloomington, Indiana that read these words, you can be good without God. 
You can be good without God. But there are more than just professed atheists who are the ones that put out that campaign or put out by the Indiana Atheist Bus Campaign. There are more than just professed atheists who believe they can be good enough. Several years ago, I know many of you would know the name Warren Buffett, but Warren Buffett several years ago uh, announced that he was going to uh, give away most of his money to charity. One of the richest men in the world going to give away most of his money to charity, which I absolutely commend him doing. But what I do not commend is what he said about it. He said, there is more than one way to go to heaven, but this is a great way. In other words, just find a way to be good. Just find a way to do something that's good because being good is good enough. It's what most people say, right? And yet the Bible never says it. In fact, the Bible says that be good is bad theology. Be good is bad theology. Now, it's feel-good theology, but it is no good theology according to the Bible. But it does feel good because it allows every person to kind of set the standard of righteousness, set the bar of righteousness wherever they want to set it. Because after all, being good is good enough. And under this understanding, most religions have merit because they can help you do that. They can help you to, to, to be good enough and have a set of rules and standards that we live by. And that's what most people think. That's the belief that so many people in our culture have. So there's a phrase, and I don't know if you guys have heard of this, but there's a phrase that showed up kind of in the religious community about 15, 16 years ago um, that's called moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism. It's from a book that was written by a couple of sociologists back in 2005 who interviewed and surveyed uh, thousands of teenagers in America about their religious beliefs. Now, most teenagers uh, in America kind of would put themselves under the banner of, of Jesus, under the banner of Christianity as far as their, their belief system goes. But it also included several other faith traditions and a lot of teens who didn't have a particular faith tradition, but what the researchers found out is that it didn't matter. It didn't really matter. Almost all the teenagers believed basically the same thing, that you should try to be a good person. There's the moralistic part of it, that God's there if you have a problem. There's the therapeutic part of it. Otherwise, he's not very involved, hence the term moralistic therapeutic deism. And they said it has Five basic tenets, and tell me if these aren't kind of made up in our religious world as a whole. Five basic tenets that teenagers believe. Number one, God exists and that he made the world. That, that there is a God out there and that's why we're here. Number two, God wants people to be good, basically. Now that's kind of ambiguous because you kind of get to define what good is. But God wants people to be good. Number three, the main goal in life, here's where it gets a little tricky, the main goal in life is to be happy. And so ultimately, it comes down to you and me and what, what we want. It's all about me. Number four, God isn't too involved unless you need a problem solved. In other words, God will basically mind his own business, but you may need to say a prayer or two every now and then. And then number five, and here's where we get to the crux of it, good people go to heaven, along with all dogs too, I guess, but good people go to heaven, and this is what happens 
when people, especially young people, come to church and we tell them what they ought to do instead of telling them what Jesus has done. You see, all religions basically have this in common, that they're teaching you how to build a set of stairs to reach God. Now, the stairs will differ a little bit, right, depending on that belief system, but basically they all have the same rules. Read a lot of this, pray a lot of that, and do a lot of this, and that will build you the stairs that you need that will be good enough for you to get to God. And nobody believes that that we can attain moral perfection. Nobody believes that anybody's perfect. But that's okay. Because everybody knows that God grades on a curve. So just be good. Because being good is good enough. But need I say it again? The Bible never says that. In fact, there may be no thought that runs more counter to the whole reason Jesus came and the whole message that he proclaims any more than the idea that you can be good enough. And perhaps there's no better story that I can think of to confront this idea and belief than a story that we find in three out of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But for our uh, purposes today, we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 10, verses 17 through 27. Kind of a long passage, but here's what Mark writes. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all of these I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell and he went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Now, when Jesus said to them, it is easier for the camel to go or for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. I'm pretty sure that the jaws of everybody who heard them heard those words dropped to the ground. Now, it may not impact us in quite the same way, either one, because we live in a different culture and, and kind of think things differently or B, we've heard these words enough that they kind of tend to fall on deaf ears. But the Jews in, in Jesus' day and age believed that prosperity was a sign of God's favor upon someone in response to that someone being obedient. The Jews believed that, that riches and possessions were a deposit from God guaranteeing eternity with him. They were God's reward to that person for that person being holy and obedient in their life. On the flip side, when someone was sick, when someone was uh, suffering, when someone was was in poverty, but they believed that God must be somehow punishing them 
for their sins. That's why they were sick or impoverished or, or suffering. Or that it was a result of their parents' sins if it wasn't their fault. Remember what the disciples asked of Jesus when uh, they passed by a man born blind in John chapter 9, verse 2. And, and they asked Jesus, teacher, why was this man born blind? What, what's the reason? Well, here's the reason they think. They give two options. Was it a result of his own sin or those of his parents? And so in Mark chapter 10, you have this man who has many possessions. He, he's wealthy. And in the disciples' eyes, it's obvious why he's rich. You know, we zero in on the rich part. They would have taken it a, a, a deeper level. There's a reason why he's rich. Because he's obeyed all the commandments since he was a child. In other words, he's a good guy. That's what they would have been hearing. Not necessarily the rich part, but the, the connection they would make to him being rich. He's been a good guy. And in everyone's eyes in Jesus' day, the rich man is the perfect illustration for who's going to get into the kingdom of heaven. Because he's obviously been performing and keeping the commandments. And this particular man is confirmed. He says, I've kept these commands since I was a little boy. And now the prosperity that he has is God's stamp of approval in response to his performance. It's, it's the guarantee that if anybody's going to get eternal life, if anybody's been good enough, it's this guy. But when Jesus says it's easier for a camel, which was the largest animal in that area, to go through the eye of a needle, which is the smallest thing basically in that area, one of the smallest things, period. When he says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, it completely shocked everyone who heard him. Because if the rich can't get eternal life in their culture, and they're the ones who are looked at as being the good guys, the spiritual guys, the worthy guys and girls, for that matter, then where does that leave the rest of us? That's why the disciples were shocked, and they respond to Jesus by saying, well, who's got any shot? Who then can be saved? In other words, if this guy can't make it, then no one can. Now, in our culture, we don't necessarily make the distinction of rich and morality. You know, we, we, we don't think that the most wealthy are necessarily the most obedient, the most moral, and therefore deserving uh, to go to heaven. That's why there's, I think, in one way a disconnect to Jesus' words and, and, and this interaction with this man. In fact, if we're honest, usually we hold the most wealthy a little bit more suspect, right, in our culture. But we do have our own ideas as to the kind of people who should be considered being highly moral and obedient or good enough to go to heaven. We, we all have this, this kind of thought process in our minds as to the people who are the standard, right? I mean, if there's anyone who's going to get saved, it's fill in the blank. And, 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 and we also have certain people out there in our culture that you know, popular culture, that, that we have this idea that if, if there's anybody that's going to go to heaven, that, that's, that, that is going to be saved, it's, it's, it's people like this, right, because of the things they've devoted their lives to. It's people like Mother Teresa, right, out there in popular culture. We have this idea, like, I mean, all of the good that she's done, right, has to count for something. And so we have our own ideas. If there's anybody out there who's going to be saved, it's going to be these people because of what they've devoted their lives to. Too. But in order for you to get the full gist of what Jesus is saying to his disciples, in order to convey 
how those words fell on those disciples' ears and everyone who was listening. Let me put what Jesus said in another way. As he says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. It's as though he was saying, it's easier for you to park your car, brand new SUV, brand new car, easier to park your car in your mailbox than it is for Mother Teresa to get to heaven on her own merit. It's easier for you to park your car. See, I think that makes a little bit more sense to us than camel through the eye of a needle. Or maybe that makes sense to you too. But I don't know how many camels you've seen or how much sewing you've done. But it's easier to park your car in your mailbox than it is for Mother Teresa to get to heaven on her own merit. And if the average American heard that, they would throw up their hands and say, well, who in the world then can be saved? And Jesus' answer is... With human beings, nobody. It's impossible. And that's his point. But with God, all things are possible. That's the point Jesus is making. It's impossible for anyone to be saved if it depends on their performance. And to drive that home, Jesus uses an example of a person who they thought was outperforming everybody else. A rich man who'd done a pretty good job of keeping the commandments since he was a little boy. He's the person they thought was a shoe-in when it came to salvation. And yet Jesus says, you know what? A camel's got a better chance of going through the eye of a needle. You got a better chance of parking your car in your mailbox than this guy does for ending eternal life on his own merit. Jesus' example stunned everybody, and it still stuns people today. Even though we've heard these things, it's still hard for us to process it. There are a lot of people in our culture who aren't all that different from the people in Jesus' day. Years ago in a Reader's Digest article, Muhammad Ali uh, made a statement that I think mirrors the belief system of a lot of Americans and a lot of Christians uh, when he said this. He said, one day we're all going to die and God's going to judge us. I agree with those two things. Our good deeds and our bad deeds. If the good, or excuse me, if the bad outweighs the good, you go to hell. If the good outweighs the bad, you go to heaven. And there are a lot of people who think like Ali or like Buffett. They think that God works out our salvation on scales of justice, right? And they assume that God saves us on the basis of which way the scales tip. And yet Jesus says that if my salvation, in essence, depends upon which way the scales tip, then you and I are in trouble for a couple of different reasons. One, we're in trouble because we tend to overestimate our goodness. Don't we? I mean, we, we, we try to, we, we, we tend to do this. We tend to overestimate our goodness. I assume that it weighs more on the scales, <coughs> excuse me, than it really does. You know, oftentimes our standard of goodness is compared to a lesser standard. None of us goes, yeah, you know, I'm going to compare myself on the goodness scale to somebody who's, you know, like a Mother Teresa type if we want to use that that. Uh, that person. Usually it's compared to a, a lesser standard than ours. And we put somebody else on the other end of the scale and you say, well, at least I'm not like that, right? And so what do we do? We put Hitler on the other side of the scale. 
We put Osama bin Laden on the other side of the scale. We put some other noted person whose life is chock full of evil, and we say, well, at least I'm not like that, right? I mean, that, I'm pretty good compared to that person. But since when are those people the standard for which we, do, we, we, we um, attribute goodness, for which we define goodness? Since when are those people the standard? And yet, how does Jesus define goodness? Jesus says to the rich man who addresses him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus right then was telling them the standard by which goodness defined. And God is the standard. God is on the other side of the scale. That's why the word says in Romans chapter 3 verse 23 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That when you consider the weight of the holiness and the purity of God, we all fall short of that. It doesn't matter if you fall a little bit short or a lot short. Every single one of us falls short of that. And when I understand that God is on the other side of the scale, when I understand that the standard is God, my goodness doesn't weigh nearly as much as it does when I compare it to other people. But not only do I have the problem of overestimating my goodness, but I also have the problem of underestimating my badness. We tend to over underestimate our bad. We, we overestimate how good we are, and, and we underestimate and kind of play down the things that, that we, you know, that, that are sin. Let's just use the, the S word. The things that we fall woefully short on. I, I assume that my badness weighs less on the scales than it really does. And I, I think a lot of this has to do with our standard of sin being far lower than God's. Either our our dismissing of what is sin or defining sin as not really sin less than what God really does define it as. And I, I you know, give you a couple examples of this. For a lot of people, we think that sin is just when you do something you're not supposed to do, right? Usually we define that with our little kids. You know, well, we may not call them little sinners, but, you know, maybe you do. I don't know how uh, you refer to your kids, but... Um, you know, we define the things that they do wrong as doing something they're not supposed to do. But then we read in places like James chapter 4, verse 17, that says, Remember, it is sin when you know what you ought to do and don't do it. Well, that expands our definition greatly. Because now I realize that not only am I sinning when I do what I'm not supposed to do, but now I'm also sinning when I don't do what I am supposed to do. Let's take it a step further, because for a lot of us, we think of sin as an external action, just what you can see, what you can verifiably see in my life, that external action. But, but Jesus takes it deeper than that. And so sin isn't just something that I do that I'm not supposed to do or not doing something that I am supposed to do, but sin can also be our thoughts and our internal motives. You can do the right things, what you are supposed to do. And not do what you're not supposed to do and still have impure motives and impure thoughts. Jesus would say earlier in Mark chapter 7 verses 20 through 23 that it's a thought life that defiles you. He says it's what comes from inside that defiles you. For from within, out of a person's heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, <coughs> adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these vile things come from within. They are what defile you. Now, how much more weight is on the sin side of the scale when you take into account 
that sin just isn't an external action, but it can also be my thought life. And that sin isn't just a matter of me doing what I'm not supposed to do, but also me not doing what I know I ought to be doing. How much more weightier does my badness get? And so my goodness doesn't weigh nearly as much as I think it does. And my badness tends to weigh a lot more than I think it does. And do you see why, if my salvation is dependent upon which way the scales tip, I'm in trouble. We may like to think that they tip in our favor if, all, you know, if we're just adding them up, but the reality is they don't. And if scales are the criteria for salvation, then Jesus would say it's easier to park your car in your mailbox than it is for you to get to heaven on how good you are and on your own merit. And that's exactly what Jesus was trying to drive home to us when he says with human beings it is impossible not possible. can't be done. But with God, all things are possible. And understand, I'm not trying to bring any of us down today as much as I'm trying to lift our eyes up off of ourselves and onto the one who was sent down to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Not long after this conversation in Mark chapter 10, he's Jesus says to his disciples later in the chapter, in verse 45, For the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. And if you and I could pay the ransom for our salvation by how we live and how good we are, then why in the world did Jesus have to come and live and die and be resurrected and do all that he did in his life and his death and resurrection? Why? If we can get there out of our own merit, and that's why the symbol for Christianity is not scales. It's not the scales of justice. It's that right there. It's a cross. And so the Sunday school teacher was trying to teach her group of kindergartners about grace. And she said, so if I sold my house and my car and gave all my money to the church, would that get me to heaven? And all the kids said, No. She said, well, what if I came and worked at the church all day and I cleaned the building and, and I, I mowed the yard? Would that get me into heaven? All the kids said, no. She said, well, what if I was nice to all the animals and I, I went to the hospitals and, and visited all the sick kids and gave them all candy? Would that get me to heaven? And they all said, no. And she said, well, what then do I have to do to go to heaven? And one little boy says, you've got to be dead. <laughs> because you see, Jesus didn't come... To save good people. He came to save dead people. And a dead person can't do anything to become better. You are dead. But you see, the good news of the gospel is the gift of God's goodness through Jesus Christ. The gospel is the gift of God's goodness. His goodness. Not our own. His goodness through Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't come to help people get better. He came to help people get born again because we weren't good. We were dead in our sins, Paul says. He doesn't mince words. You were dead in your sins. You weren't sick. You were dead. Then he says in verses 8 and 9, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. You can't feel good just because 
by your metrics, you measure higher than somebody else. Titus chapter 3, one of my favorite passages, verses 5 through 7 says this. He saved us, not because of the righteous things that we had done. Let's just get it out of the way. That's not why he saved you. Not how or why. Not because of any righteous things you have done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us not a way to get better, giving us new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ our Savior. Because of His grace, He declared us righteous and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. Now, if we're not good enough and God cannot lie, then how does He declare us righteous? So the answer is God sees goodness in us when He sees us in His good Son. And so one of the most amazing verses in the Bible is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Paul says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Listen to me. The, the good news is not better stairs. The good news is that Jesus is our lift. We're not saved by being good. We're saved by believing in Jesus and in God's promise to transfer His goodness to us. Because salvation is not merit. Salvation is a miracle. And because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free and God's justice is satisfied. And so when we ask the question, what is the most important thing for salvation? What's the most important thing for salvation? Sure, we can talk about the things that the Bible says. And we, we talk about them a lot. They are, they are necessary. We can talk about belief and repentance and confession and baptism. And those are all things that the Bible says are, 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 are necessary for us to enter into salvation. But the only answer to the question, what is most important and necessary for your salvation and my salvation, there's only one answer. It's God. God is necessary. God is most important. God is where you begin looking for your salvation. And my salvation and your salvation begins with God. If he's not in the picture, there is no picture to be painted when it comes to salvation. Nobody's going to get, none of us are going to get to heaven and say, I helped. I helped. Now, is what I'm saying too good to be true? Maybe, maybe some think that. But here's the answer I would give to you. The gospel is too good not to be true. It's too good not to be true. I've said this before and I'll say it again. The people who say that all religions are basically the same have not studied all religions. Because Christianity is so different. Every other religion says, here's a way to build a set of stairs and to be good. Christianity says, you're not good. You're not good. God, in fact, you're so bad that God had to become one of you and to die in your place. Listen, nobody would make up something like that. There's only one religion that says it is finished. The debt's been paid. 
and will let you get off the try to be better treadmill. And I'm telling you this morning, and, and I want you to listen because right now I know someone either here or listening online is hearing me and, and listening to what I'm saying and, and wrestling with what I'm teaching, and eternity is literally in the balance. The worst form of human badness. I'm making, I'm not speaking hyperbole. I'm being dead serious with you. The worst form of human badness is human goodness substituted for the, the blood of Jesus Christ. Because there's nothing you can do to substitute for that. Not a single person listening to me here or online, not a single person listening to me right now is so good that you do not need to be born again. But let me also say this. Not a single person listening to me is so bad that you cannot be born again. And what you have to decide, because we're all going to meet God. What you have to decide is are you going to face him trusting in your goodness or trusting in his? Because being good is not good enough. But the really good news to everyone who knows they aren't good enough is this. Jesus is. Jesus is.